Hey everyone, I'm Ferdinand and I'm the gathering director here at the River Church at our Holly location. Thanks for checking out one of our messages today. We would love to get connected with you and your family. One easy way to do that is to text River Connect one word to 97,000 or you can visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and our upcoming events. If you'd like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321 or you can visit our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, let's open those up together to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter number 5. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you as much as I can to either share with someone sitting next to you, or you can pull out your smartphone and download a Bible app or the River Church app, and you can follow along there. Man, we finished that song just a moment ago, and we as Christians, we proclaim that our Savior, Christ, has died on the cross, and he has indeed risen from the dead. We believe that, and all that we believe hinges on that fact, the fact that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, the Bible says, according to the scriptures, and that he rose again. And so you may not understand, and certainly I do not, we may not understand all of the truths of the Bible or the infinite that is God. But what we do understand is that there were some people just like you and I who witnessed the resurrected Christ. And it's because of their testimony that we see in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. We see the gospel writers and we see the apostle Paul testifying, witnessing that they had seen the resurrected Christ. Often in conversations, that's why I'll tell people I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus did die for my sins, but I believe Jesus is alive and ruling and reigning right now. And so maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you struggle with all of these things that just are hard to wrap our minds around. But here's what I want you to know. Christ loves you. He died to pay the penalty for your sins, and he rose from the dead. And he offers to you in this moment, whether you're sitting in this room or whether you're watching online, he offers to you the forgiveness of all of your sins and the hope of eternal life. That's why Christians celebrate. That's why we sing that Jesus is alive. That's why we sing that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we sing about the cross, because it is what has transformed our lives and what has given us hope. Now, I don't know about you, but we could just stop right there, sing all of those songs again, because it thrills me to talk about Jesus. Does it you? Right? Does it thrill you to talk about what the Lord has done for you? Are you awake today? Are you alive? Okay. Because if you're not alive, I'm going to just let loose here for the next two hours. No, I'm kidding. We would not do that. Matthew chapter 5. Let's pick up there, and we're going to pick up in verse number 17 in just a moment. A couple weeks ago, we began our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and so our goal is to wrap up the rest of chapter 5 by the end of next month, so the end of November, and then next year, next October and November, we'll return to the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll do that a couple years in sequence, and hopefully uh, in the next couple years, wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. But I want you to see verse number 17, and I want you to understand what's about to follow. This is kind of, it's interesting, salt and light, as we've looked at over the last two weeks, uh, really kind of lock in together. There's different aspects of that that Jesus is using. But in verse 17, he's really about to begin a new thought. Now, not a new thought that's not connected to what he's already said, but he's going to deal with some specific things. So verse number 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So when Jesus is talking about the law, And the prophets, he's talking about a couple different things. When he says the law, he's talking about what we know as the Torah, or more specifically, the Pentateuch. And that is the first five books of the Bible. Now, I'm going to encourage you to do something a couple times in this sermon. I want you to just hold your spot in Matthew, and I want you to go to the table of contents. 
And not because I'm trying to insult anyone's intelligence, but I just want you to see what we're talking about here. So when Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he's talking about a couple facets of the Old Testament. When he says the law, he's talking about the books of Moses. So you look there at the table of contents, you'll see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the Pentateuch. That is the books of the law. Those are written by Moses. And inside of there are some things that you may or may not be familiar with. In the book of Exodus, we see what is really the the formalizing of the law when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he meets with God and God gives him the tablets of the law. Now, we summarize the law in the Ten Commandments, but here's what I want you to understand. The law was 600 plus laws, over 600. I think it's about 613. So 600 plus laws, some that were laws, hey, don't do this. Others that were part of the 600 plus laws were don't do this, do this. So there were the do's and the don'ts of the law. So go back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, don't think or do not think that I have come to abolish or destroy or ignore or do away with the law, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or the prophets. And so what we see here with this expression, the law and the prophets, is the Old Testament. Now, in Jesus' day, and I want to take this a little bit out of sequence I feel like this kind of the logic is going there. In Jesus' day, you look down to verse number 20, you'll see two groups of people mentioned. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so there, when Jesus is sitting and teaching, you had his followers, you had his committed students. But you also had the religious people, the Pharisees, the scribes. They were the intellectuals. The Pharisees were the conservatives of the religious spectrum. And so they're also there. They would come out to witness Jesus' teaching. I think initially they may have come out to be kind of fair judges of Jesus. Like, who's this... Who's this new rabbi? Who's this new teacher? People are going to see him. Let's go check it out. Eventually, they became so overwhelmed with jealousy at Jesus' popularity and ministry that they sought for three years to kill him. They couldn't discredit him, so they're like, you know, let's just kill this guy. And so the Pharisees and the scribes were there. But here's what the, the scribes and the Pharisees did. They took the law. They took the Old Testament. They took the Ten Commandments and they twisted them. I want to show you how. Hold your spot in Matthew and go to the right, to Matthew chapter number 15. Matthew chapter number 15. Jesus says, Back in five, right? He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. So it was very likely that that was a rumor, that Jesus was opposed to the Old Testament, that Jesus was opposed to the law, that Jesus was going to bring down any sort of respect for Moses or the temple or so on and so forth. Matthew chapter number 15. The Bible says, then the Pharisees and the scribes, the same people, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So they had taken the law, the 600 plus laws, and they had expanded some of them, and they had minimized others of them, which we'll see in a moment. Well, one of the laws or the regulations that they had maximized, that they had expanded, was this idea of washing your hands. Now, here we are in the year 2022. We, over the last two years, have probably collectively washed our hands more than any group of people in the history of the world. 
And I don't know about you, but we sing songs or you count or whatever. I mean, I thoroughly wash my hands more than I ever have in my life. That's not what the Pharisees were talking about. The Pharisees were talking about a religious act, an act that meant that you were washing your hands to potentially purify yourself from being ceremonially or religiously unclean. So they were habitually washing their hands because they thought, man, I need to make sure I stay clean before God. Now, I hope that no one in this room says, I've washed my hands so that I can stay clean before God. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. And so they were so upset when they saw Jesus' disciples eating, and before they ate, they hadn't washed their hands. Not as a sanitary thing, but as a religious thing. So the disciples' hands could be perfectly clean, but they didn't see them go through a super you know, high ritual washing their hands. Okay, they're ceremonially clean. They're religiously clean. They're good to now eat their food. So they approach Jesus, and they're really upset. And they say, why, why do your followers break the traditions, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? Look at Jesus' response. He answered them. And why do you break the commandment of God For the sake of your tradition. Look at what's being set up against each other. The commandment of God, the clear commandments of the Old Testament versus the traditions of the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were projecting to everyone that they were obeying all of the commandments. I want you to think about that. 600 plus laws and they're walking through life going, I got an A plus. I haven't broke them. I'm obedient to all of them. And the way they were able to do that, again, was by minimizing some of the commandments and maximizing others. Well, what did they maximize? Hand washing. Look at what Jesus says. You break the commandment of God, but you honor the tradition. Verse four, for God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And I want you to see this. This is underlined in my Bible because this, I think, is really important to understand the law and the Pharisees and legalism today. Jesus, quoting Isaiah, says, You teach as doctrines the commandments of men, meaning mankind's invented rules. You teach as if that is from God. You teach that as if it is doctrine or dogma or inescapable. Like that is fact. That is gospel. And Jesus says, you're abandoning the commandments of God. And he makes a reference here to hand washing. He addresses that. But he says, there's a commandment, 10 commandment, right? Honor your father and mother. He says, but you'll say to people, yeah, mom, dad, what you were supposed to get from me, you're not getting anything because I've given that to God. And so there was this weird loophole that the religious leaders were using to rip off moms and dads and get rich. And so Jesus says, you're hypocrites, you're pretenders, you're fakers, you're actors, and you've gone so far is to teach your ideas as on par with God's. Go to the right, a couple more chapters. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter number 23. The beginning of the chapter is what we know as the seven woes. And my son has a joke every time I'm going to preach somewhere. He's like, seven woes, dad? I'm like, no, I'm not going to preach the seven woes. But the seven woes are seven warnings Jesus' final warnings to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. Look at chapter 23 and verse number 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Meaning they're in a religious place of authority, but you need to understand that Don't follow their example. 
Here's why. For they preach and they do not practice. They preach and they do not practice. Jump down to verse number 25. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, meaning there needs to be a heart change before you're worried about a cup and a plate. He continues on. He says, you you tithe. Back to verse number 24. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, meaning a 10% gift of mint and dill and cumin. These little spices that maybe some of you grew in a little pot outside the back of your door this last summer. These little tiny spices, they were getting their spices out of their garden or their their farm or whatever it might be, and they were going, okay, i got to make sure that I give 10% of this to God. And so their measurements were super, super precise. Look at what Jesus says. You go so far to tithe from these tiny little uh, spices, and yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You're so worried about mint and dill and these other spices that you ignore justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, these ought, not be, ought to have uh, done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you straining at a gnat, but you're swallowing a camel. Jesus says you're, you're, you're choking down a camel willingly, but you're getting all, all messed up over a tiny little gnat. Leave the gospel of Matthew. Go to the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter number 18. Luke chapter number 18 and verse number 9. It's a parable, the story that Jesus tells. Verse number 9, Jesus is speaking. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, meaning too good to be with anybody else, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, meaning they were charged to fast like once a year, but these Pharisees are like, oh no, we're going twice a week we're fasting. So he says to God, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. There's the prayer. Not, God, thank you for your salvation. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for who you are. God, aren't I awesome? And if you've forgotten how awesome I am, let, you, let me remind you of all of the awesome things I do. Like that was the prayer. The tax collector, by contrast, just, just to give some balance to the parable, the Bible says the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter number five. That is the context into which Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to a religious culture that views the Pharisees as the most holy, the most righteous, the most certainly destined for heaven. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus says they're fakers. Now, I'm saying it, I would guess, in a much meaner, more, uh, you know, I lack the gentleness of Christ in that. So here's Jesus speaking full of grace and full of truth, but he says they are hypocrites. 
They're in a position of authority, so you need to do what they tell you to do, but don't do what they do because they, pra- they, do not, they, they preach, but they do not practice. Jesus said they're so obsessed about tithing little herbs. They're so obsessed about hand washing, and yet they've abandoned justice and mercy. They've abandoned the weightier matters of the law. So Jesus shows up. And he reigns on their parade. Can I tell you this? I still think when we encounter Jesus, he crushes our man-made religion. It is a wrecking ball to what we think is righteousness and holiness. Look back at Matthew 5. And I want you to see this phrase, and we're going to look at him over the next five, six weeks, whatever it is. Verse 21. You're going to see this repeated couple of phrases. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Meaning you've heard the Pharisees and the religious leaders say this. Verse 22. But I say to you. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said. Verse 28. But I say to you. Verse 31, it was also said. Verse 32, but I say to you. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said. Verse 34, but I say to you. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said. Verse 44, but I say to you. This is what I want you to understand. Religious people and pastors and teachers and writers will say a lot of nonsense. You need to make certain it is what God has said. You need to make certain it is in the word of God in black and white. That is why for me it is a huge passion that you bring your Bibles, that you open the scripture. Because if, if you're looking to me, man, that's a scary thing. That's a scary habit to develop. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were so exalted that they were able to twist the rules. They were able to maximize this little hand-washing thing, but minimize justice and mercy and the weightier matters of the law. So when Jesus comes in with authority and Jesus starts calling out their hypocrisy, it's very likely, and we see this in verse 17, that they were starting to accuse Jesus of being anti-Old Testament or anti-law, or anti-Moses. And so Jesus just head first addresses this. Head on goes after this criticism. Verse 17, he says to his disciples, he says to the crowd, he says to likely the Pharisees and the scribes milling around listening, do not think that I have come to abolish or destroy or do away with the law and the prophets. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is a bold statement. Jesus says, I've not come to get rid of the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. And we can use a lot of synonyms there for the word fulfill. Jesus says, I've come to really explain the Old Testament. I've come to illuminate the Old Testament. I've come to tell you and show you what the whole Old Testament was about and is about. Now, I want to pause here before we jump into that because it's going to be a super fun run through the Bible. But I want to encourage you. Some of you... And I've been guilty of this as well. You go into the Old Testament and you go, I have no idea what's happening here. So-and-so is begatting so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat a name that I don't even know how to pronounce, and then he begat 10 more names that I don't know how to pronounce. I don't know why this is in the Bible. And then you open up other things, and God is sending militaries in and telling them, kill everyone. And you're like, uh, Okay. And then you get to some prophets, and you're like, I don't know who he's talking to. I don't know what's going on. And so what often happens, a huge mistake, is that Christians go, yeah, that's old. That's old. I'll just stick with the new. 
But here's the deal. You and I can never fully comprehend or understand the ministry or the message of Jesus and the New Testament without first having a basic knowledge of the Old Testament. They work in tandem. And Jesus is the bridge to understanding, the connection point to understanding both the Old Testament stories and what's happening in the New Testament. I read this morning from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I thought it was super interesting. He regretted the idea that we ever just printed the New Testament. Now, that's not to belittle um, Gideons and folks that hand out the New Testament. Please, please know that. That's not a knock against them. But it's a mistake to just center on the New Testament and not spend time in the Old Testament. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is affirming the Old Testament. He says, don't think that I've come to just throw it out the window or abolish it. He said, I've not come to abolish it. Actually, the opposite. He says, I have come to fulfill it. So I was thinking over the last couple of days, how do I explain this idea of fulfillment? Not fulfillment and like I'm looking for fulfillment, but Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. About 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I, uh, I say a little bit longer than that now, my wife came to me and said, hey, I want to move to the country and start a little farm. And uh, so I'm like, what? <laughs> like I was, I was the kid who barely grew up with a dog and that didn't last very long. So now we're going to move and we're going to have what I did not know existed a thing as a, a hobby farm. And if you want to know what a hobby farm is, a hobby farm is where you spend all your money on the hobby farm. And uh, so it's not like a farmer who actually sells things and makes money. A hobby farm is you spend all your money on that. And then some hobby farmers lie and say, man, you can buy some of my vegetables. And then people buy those vegetables for $5 and then you pay yourself a nickel per day. Okay, so it is, it's, there's, there's no money to be made. And if you want to disagree with that, great, have a good time. But anyways, the point is, so 10 years ago, we, we decided, okay, I, we decided. My wife told me we decided to uh, move to the country, right? And so we've had, a, we've had an awesome time. We've had an exciting adventure over the last uh, decade. Well, we started looking for a house. And, you know, the, <laughs> the prospect of moving is terrifying, and so friends, Mark and some others would bring over trailers. And so we were just emptying the house into these trailers and closing got delayed a little bit. But for, for multiple months and years, we were looking for a house. And so we had a little list of things that we wanted to find in a house. We were looking for a house that had a little bit of land. And because we didn't think that Grand Blank neighborhood was the place to start a hobby farm. And so we were looking for a little bit of land we were looking for a bigger house, not because we had to have a bigger house, but because when you got four kids, now we have five kids, you homeschool, so there's a lot happening at the house, and we love to host. So many of you have been to our house, and so we love to host people. So it's like, okay, we want to have that, and then we want to have a barn. My wife wants to have a barn, and then uh, we want it to be off the road, right? So those were the four things, so we would pray about that. And so then, you know, what you do, you go online, you look at houses, then you start to run through your checklist. Okay, the house, oh, the house is nice. Uh, there's no barn. We don't really want to build a barn. And, and so, you know, all these different things. So we were looking for kind of this checklist of a house. And then one day, we drove out to little Hadley, Michigan, and we pulled up to this house on Deal Road, and we fell in love. And we're like, this is incredible. And we walked through it. There wasn't a level floor in the house. There wasn't a square door in the house. We're like, is this like, is this like one of those things in an amusement park where you're supposed to like walk crooked or something? Like, it was just, but we walked in the house and I remember our realtor walking through like, oh my gosh, look at this place. This is a pit. And we're like, we'll take it, right? And he's like, are you serious? And we're like, yes. Because it checked all the boxes for us at least except one, right? It wasn't super far off the road, but it was on a dirt road that barely anybody drives on. So it was like, we'll take it. It's everything that we are looking for. Here's what Jesus means right here in Matthew 5, 17. He says, don't think that I've come to throw away the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. He says, quite the opposite. I have come to fulfill them. Here's what the Old Testament, if you can envision it this way. 
The Old Testament are all of these things that people were looking for and hoping for and longing for. And Jesus was going to be the fulfillment of all of those things. Jesus wasn't going to miss any of those boxes. Jesus was going to check every single one of them. I want to share with you just some of them because I was so encouraged thinking about this. So let's go back to the beginning of the Bible, back to Genesis chapter number 2. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 3. While you're turning there, just as a side note, I've been trying to do better at sending our tech team my message, and they told me today that they don't really load them in because they don't believe it. I was offended. I thought, I sent you the message. I have completely reversed the entire message, by the way. So they were right. Genesis chapter number three. So we have the beginning there in Genesis one of creation. And then now here in Genesis three, we have what we know as the fall. So Adam and Eve sin, they rebel against God. Verse number 15. This is God really doling out the punishment for sin. What we know is the curses. Verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So Satan between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, meaning the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head or crush your head and you, Satan, you shall bruise his heel. It's this weird prophecy that's tucked in here in the curses, but here's the wonderful thing. It is what we would know as a type and a shadow or a prophecy of the coming Christ. So what does Jesus come and do? Jesus is the offspring of the woman, born of a virgin, and Jesus goes to the cross and pays the penalty for our sin, and in doing so, crushes the head of the serpent. Turn a few chapters to the right. Go to chapter number six. You'll see the most, one of the most devastating stories in all of the Bible. It is the story of the ark, Noah and his ark. So Noah builds an ark because it was through the ark that his family, eight people and creation and the animals were going to be saved from God's destruction. That is a type and a shadow of Christ that was to come Jesus is the ark of our salvation. He is the one and only means to being spared and saved from the wrath of God. Go to Genesis chapter number 12. Some of you are doing the math. At this rate, we're going to be here forever. I promise I only got 50 more. Genesis chapter number 12. This is what we know is the covenant or the agreement between Abram or Abraham as he would become known and God. Verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This wasn't a financial thing. This is a promise of the gospel. This is the promise of Christ to come. Galatians says that God preached the gospel to Abraham and telling him, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here's the reality. Jesus didn't just come for white Americans. Jesus came and paid the penalty 2,000 years ago for the sins of all mankind. Black and white and rich and poor Every nation on earth, you can take the gospel message and you can go into all the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to fulfill that promise to Eve. He's the ark of salvation. He's the covenant with Abraham. It it keeps going on. You see Joseph, he's a type and a shadow of Christ. You see Moses. I want to show you this. Go to the right, go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter number 18. Deuteronomy chapter number 18 and verse 15. So Deuteronomy is Moses, the dying leader's parting sermon. It's his last will and testament. The scripture says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, 
from your brothers. It is him or to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly. When you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. This great prophet that was going to come was Christ. It was Jesus. There's so many more. I just want to, you go through the kings, right? You get to Joshua and Joshua does what? Joshua leads the people into the promised land. He's a type and a shadow, a picture of Christ leading his people into the promised land of eternal life. You get to kings like Solomon and David and Saul, and they often in different places serves as type and shadows of not just a king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You get to some Old Testament prophets, some of those major and minor prophets, and you see a story like Jonah. Jonah is not a story about a guy who just got swallowed by a big fish and spit back out. It's a guy who went into the fish and came back out, and it was through his testimony that people were saved. That's a type and a shadow and a prophecy of Christ who would die and go into the belly of the earth and then come out, and through his testimony, the testimony of his resurrection, people could be saved. And go back to Matthew. We could bounce all over the Bible here, and I'm trying not to pinball too much, but it's so thrilling to me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, what's Jesus say? He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of every type and shadow in the Old Testament. Maybe, maybe a better way of explaining it. I look at all of those stories in the Old Testament as a gigantic flashing arrow pointing to the coming Christ. And as we open the scripture, all of the Old Testament is this gigantic arrow pointing to Jesus in different ways. You see types and you see shadows. Spurgeon points this out, and I just thought the way he did, did it was great. He is, meaning Christ himself, is the, fil- the fulfillment. I need to slow down here. The fulfillment and substance of the types and prophecies and commands of the law. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. I would encourage you, maybe the next time you read the Gospel of Matthew, get a highlighter out or a pen and highlight and underline the amount of times you'll see the word fulfill. I'm going to miss a bunch of them, but I hope that you'll get the point here. Verse 21, Matthew 1.21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Look at Matthew's note here. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Well, what did the prophet say? Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So there is this Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah chapter number 7. Jesus is the fulfillment, not just of these types and shadows in the Old Testament, but of prophecies. Jump into chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse number 14. So this is the, what we know as the Christmas story. He rose and took the child, so this is Joseph, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Look at verse number 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. It continues on. Look at the end of verse number 23. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Chapter number 4. In verse number 14. Excuse me, verse uh, 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Jump forward later in the book. They're all throughout the book, but I want you to jump forward to chapter number 20. 
26. This is now the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane some 33-ish years later. Verse 54. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? Look at verse 56. All this has taken place that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Chapter 27, verse 9. Then was fulfilled. I mean, you could literally go through all of the book of Matthew and over and over and over again, you'll see fulfillment. When you and I read the Bible, sometimes we are tempted to think, okay, someone just sat down and they started on page one and they wrote, um, you know, to the end. That's not how it worked. Forty something different writers over a thousand plus years wrote in different languages and different cultures. When you read in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, it's not that Mary's parents went to the Old Testament and went, okay, we got a huge checklist to do. It wasn't a Bible scavenger hunt where they had to check all the boxes. It was the fulfillment of all of the prophecy and the plan of God. So the place that Jesus was supposed to be born was named the fact that his mother would be a virgin. We see in Isaiah 9, 6 that the government would be on his shoulders. He would be called a king. I mean, it's just incredible. I'll show you another one. If you want to turn there, you can turn to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22 is the death of Jesus prophesied written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 12, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a, a ravening and roaring lion I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. I mean, the whole chapter keeps going through talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. So what do we see? Jesus says, I've not come to do away with the Old Testament. He said, I have come to fulfill it. All of those types and shadows and stories in the Old Testament of salvation and sacrifice, those were pointing to me. All of the prophecies, those were pointing to me. Now go back to Matthew chapter number four. Excuse me, Matthew chapter number three. Jesus comes to his relative, some would say his cousin. We don't know that for certainty, but possibly. He comes to John the Baptist, and he's going to be baptized. So he comes to John, and John is not comfortable with this, to say the least. Verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you, and do you come to me? And Jesus said, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill all righteousness. You can put these down in your notes. I'm not going to have you turn there because we've been turning a lot. But in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse 21, Paul says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Knew no sin. So here's what we see about Jesus, what this idea of fulfillment means. Jesus says all of the Old Testament stories are pointing to me. 
all of the Old Testament prophecies about a coming Messiah and a coming Savior and a coming prophet and a coming King, they point to me. And Jesus says those standards, those 600 plus laws, I'm going to fulfill them because I'm going to be the only person ever to live who will be entirely obedient to them. In John chapter 8, the religious leaders were confronting Jesus. And Jesus very plainly says to them in John chapter 8 and verse 46, he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you? You can't because Jesus was sinless. Sinless. So taking Spurgeon's three things, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the types in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the only one who fulfills all the commands of the law in the Old Testament. Man, it is Christ. Now let's go back to Matthew 5. So the criticism was likely Jesus, they thought Jesus was going to do away with the law, the prophets. And Jesus says, oh no. He says, they all point to me. I'm the fulfillment of it. Verse 18. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Now, not heaven where God lives, but heaven meaning the, 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 the sun, the moon, the stars, the sky, the galaxy. So until that passes away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, I just want to read a note about that. So one commentator said, Jesus confirms the full authority of the Old Testament as scripture for all ages, even down to the smallest components of the Hebrew alphabet, the yod, and the least stroke of a pen. In the King James, it's called a tittle, jot or tittle, which most likely refers to a seraph, a small hook or projection that differentiates various Hebrew letters. The way we would say it in English Every T will be crossed and every I will be dotted. And Jesus said, until heaven and earth passes away, not one iota or one dot of that will be done away with. And I want you to see in verse 18 what he says, until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. Now, we could do this over the next couple weeks. We're going to have some heavy things to talk about. So we're going to do some heavy lifting today, and I, I'm sorry for this. But I want to answer a major question here. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we would look and go, man, that's a lot. And we obviously don't do it. Right? We don't have a temple. We're not sacrificing we cut the corners of our beards. We eat shrimp. I mean, there's some variety of things. And this is a, maybe a common criticism. Maybe you've heard this before. Like, you believe the whole Bible? Well, why don't you do that? And there'll be some people that will take the Old Testament and they'll twist it. Similarly to the Pharisees. Not necessarily with religious motivations, but they'll, they'll twist the Old Testament law out of its purpose. So it's going to be really important that you, you hang with me over the next few minutes because I want to answer this important question, what is the purpose of God's law, of those 600 plus laws? And maybe we can just summarize it down to the Ten Commandments. So hold your spot in Matthew 5 and go over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3. Verse 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So let's just take that in reverse. Here's a purpose of the law. End of verse number 20. It's through the law that we know what sin is. Sin is. So take the handful of Ten Commandments. Right? You shouldn't steal and, and don't covet. Don't bear false witness. Don't commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. I mean, you see the commandments there. And it's because of those commandments that we know what God's expectations are. Or we would say we know how high God is. So think about your life and my life. When I read the Ten Commandments, the only one that I'm like, well, okay, I, I haven't murdered anybody. And then Jesus debunks that in Matthew chapter 5. So I'm 0 for 10. And James says, if someone keeps the whole law, so 600 plus, you're good, but breaks it in one point, the Bible says he or she is accountable or guilty in front of the whole law. So here's what it is. And, and I Again, we could do this as an illustration, but I wouldn't want to hurt anybody. Imagine standing before God and you have you know, a, a weight bar across your shoulders. And, and like weights, like 45-pound you know, weights, they, a person starts to come on each side and slide those on. Maybe at first you'll be able to stand there like, I can carry this. This is not crushing me. But after 600-plus pounds, 600-plus 45-pound weights get put on you, no human being can stand because the weight is too much. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying the law does a few things. It shows us what sin is. In verse number 19, it says, so every mouth may be stopped. It shuts everybody up. Like if you see the law... No human being in their right mind, and this is why Jesus was so frustrated with the Pharisees, no human being can look at the law and go, I'm good. I'm all set. I'm free to go. I do all those things all the time. The law is this weight that is placed on our shoulders that is crushing. And Paul says it stops everyone's mouth and, verse number 19, the whole world is held accountable to God. You can leave Romans and go to the right. Go to 1 Timothy, chapter number 1. I'm going to bounce around a little bit here, so if you just want to write them down and look at them later, you can. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, in verse number 8. Take your time to get there, okay? First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. The Bible says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly, the sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, darn it, I'm in that list. I'm, I have been a liar in my life, amongst other things. So what does the law do? The law is this burden that crushes me. I cannot live up to the standard of the law. It breaks me. Jesus says, don't think that I have come to destroy the law. No, no, no. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, meaning the types, shadows, the prophecies, and all of the commands. Jesus said, 
Truly I say to you, write an authoritative statement, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So what does the law do? The law is meant to be preached so that people go, oh, I'm toast. I can't do that. It wouldn't matter if I put all of my effort into that. I, I can't live up to that 24-7, 365 from the moment I'm born to the moment I die. I cannot live up to that. The purpose of the law is to reveal sin. Go to the left and go to the book of Galatians. We'll look at a couple there. Galatians chapter number 3. So what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? What's the purpose of the law? It reveals sin. It holds us all accountable. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. Look at the verbiage here. The law is like a, a guardian. It's a prison, meaning it's these, these rails so we know what morality is. But we are imprisoned by it. Look at verse 24. Until. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul says this, just write this in the margin of your Bible, Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look at Galatians chapter number 5 and verse number 18. The Bible says if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is extraordinary news. And I hope that you will be as thrilled as I am about hearing this. We cannot bear that burden. It, our knees buckle and we are crushed to the ground by the weight of our sin. And the law reveals that we are sinners, that we've rebelled against God. Here's the warning. If you reject Christ what he did for you on the cross. That weight on your shoulders is how you will be judged in eternity before God. You will be judged by the law. And it is unyielding. Its standards are so high because God is high and holy. And God is merciful, but God is also just. And we often say, God, can't you just erase sin? That would be asking God to ignore his very core character of holiness. People are like, can't God just ignore that? No, he can't because he is holy and he is righteous. So what does God do? God gives us a choice. He lays before all of humanity, you in this room, those of you watching online, he lays before you Will you be judged in eternity before the law? Or will you come to God and say, God, I can't do this. This is crushing. And the Bible says those who have come to Christ, it is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to whoever believes. Everyone who believes, everyone who comes to Christ and says, Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I know that you died on the cross, that the whole Old Testament was pointing to you, all of the stories, all of the types, all of the shadows, all of the prophecies, and Jesus, you were perfect to the law. 
You never sinned. You never thought anything perverse. You never sinned against anyone. You never bore false witness. You never did any of those things. And yet you went to the cross and you paid the penalty for my sin. And what happens at the cross is Jesus taking that weight off of believers' shoulders and putting it on himself. And that burden is the judgment of God. It is eternal hell. Jesus takes that and puts that on himself. And that's why Paul said, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. We can now stand before God righteous and blameless, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Now go back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, I've not come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it. I'm the culmination of all of it. Not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying? The Pharisees were maximizing these little commandments and they were minimizing these major commandments. Verse 20, here's the bomb. For I tell you, here's Jesus, looking at his audience, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Think of the most holy person you know the most righteous person you know. And if you put their life, this is not meant as a critical as a judgment, but just kind of just an exercise here. You take the law and you take their life, every person stands before God guilty. The idea that the Pharisees were not a shoe-in for heaven, I'm sure between verses number 20 and verse 21, Jesus is like, uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but this is kind of how I interpret it. Yeah, let's take a break. That's going to take you a minute to wrap your minds around. Because the Pharisees had said, hey, we're in for heaven because we abide by the law. We're washing our hands. We're tithing all of these herbs. We are set to go. And Jesus said, you're fakers. You honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from God. To the point in John chapter 8, Jesus says, you think God's your father, Satan's your father. That's that's the spiritual family that you're in. The good news is that the kingdom of God had come. And Jesus was going to make a way for people to be saved. Romans chapter 3 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here it is. Do you believe? Do you believe? Not does your wife believe or your husband believe or your kid believe or your parents believe. Do you believe? Have you come in your mind and in your heart to the empty tomb of Christ and said, oh, he rose from the dead? Have you come in your heart and mind to the cross of Calvary and said, Jesus is dying for my sin. He's not a sinner. I'm the sinner. He shouldn't be there. I should be there. Have you felt the crushing weight of the law? And then have you felt the blessed relief of Jesus taking your burden? Of Jesus living the perfect life that we could not live, but that Jesus lived in our place. My favorite illustration about this is so simple and so dumb, but it makes me smile every time. It's like having the valedictorian in your school come to your report card and say, hey, you didn't do so well. You want to trade grades? Yes, I do. Now, maybe you got all A's. 
not me, all right? So this illustration works for those of us who didn't do so hot. What Jesus did is Jesus got all A's. He was a 4.0 student and beyond. We flunked. And Jesus comes to us and says, ah, I'll give you my righteousness. Sometimes we use the word imputed. It's really the word borrowed. It's the borrowed righteousness of God. So guess what? You know when we come before God, we don't say, God, like the Pharisee, look at all the awesome things that I have done, right? I've not lied this week. I've not committed adultery this week. I haven't killed anybody this week. Lord, aren't I awesome? And that's when we look at James 2.10 and the Bible says, whoever keeps the whole law but offends in one point is guilty of all the law. So we can never go before God and say, well, I'm better than her and I'm better than him and I'm better than that family. Aren't you lucky to have me, God? We come to God like the man in the story and we beat on our chest and we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God says, I will. Because of Christ. Folks, this is the gospel. This is real good news. This is news that ought to change the way we worship, that ought to change the way we live. This ought to change the way we read the scripture and then we read through the Old Testament stories and we come to Christ and we go, there it is, there he is, what I've been waiting for, what I've been looking for, there he is, the king and the prophet and the Messiah and my savior. Oh man, that's the story of the Bible. I hope that's your story too. I hope that if you're sitting here or if you're watching online, you are not still trying to earn God's favor. The only path to earning God's favor is to obey the law every day, all day for the, for the entirety of your life. And the problem is, once we figure that out, we've already broken it a whole bunch. And so what do we have to do? We have to come to Christ. And we have to say, Jesus, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Romans 10, 9 says, we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. We believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says we will be saved. We'll be saved from the eternal, right, rightful consequences of our sin. And we will be pardoned and will be given the gift of eternal life.